All right, folks, we're going to jump in here this morning. Uh, we're in biblical interpretation here. Uh, this class is going to go through how to read and understand apocalyptic literature. Um, last week, Russell Bleakian walked us through how to read hard texts and apparent contradictions. Again, I say apparent because the entirety of Scripture is true and all it teaches. And we'll come to a couple of those different theological perspectives here in a minute with this type of literature. Um, but before we do, I want to read part of Psalm 86, just as a, a good anticipation of reading through God's word this morning. So if you guys want to join me in Psalm 86, we're going to read verse 8 through 13 as just a, a setting here of our time with the Lord. So again, Psalm 86, verse 8 through 13. I'll read that for us. And this is a, a prayer of David. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I'll glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So let me open us in, in prayer before we get started. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you and praise you that your word is true in all it teaches, that you as, yeah, Father, um, are good to give us your word. Thank you that it is inspired, that it comes right from you. Jesus, we thank you that you proclaim in John that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through you. So, Father, I pray that the, the time that we spend this morning reflecting on your word um, yeah, some very big realities and some hard truths to swallow. Father, you'd be kind in proclaiming who you are to us. We praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So as I was mentioning, right, the inerrancy of scripture is important, right? So as we look at apocalyptic literature, parts of different areas of prophecy, understanding that God's word is true and all it teaches is very important. So I think there's five core theological principles that will be very important for us this morning as we think through apocalyptic literature. And again, each, each week as we've been going through these different types of biblical literature, each, each person teaching has been stressing the importance of inerrancy, inspiration, and authority, because how we view God's word is imperative for how we understand it. And so our theological understanding of God's word helps us with understanding it, right? So I, I think there's really five core perspectives on how we are anticipate God's word, and this morning is no different. So God's word is inspired. It's God-revealed, right? First Timothy says it's God-breathed. God's word is inerrant. It's true in all it teaches. So we're going to be spend, spending some time looking at the book of Revelation, Daniel, Joel, Isaiah, Zechariah, and others. And these texts are canonical, meaning that they're part of Scripture. These are no different 
but these are unique in the fact that these apocalyptic literature can claim the fact that they're part of scripture. All non-scriptural apocalyptic literature can't make that claim. So we need to pay close attention to that. Scripture is authoritative, meaning it's trusted and it's fully reliable. Scripture is sufficient. It's alone enough for understanding the gospel and understanding our relationship with the Father and the Son. And as I mentioned, this text, like no other, is part of the canon. Right? So the canon as we have is meant to be preserved, is not to be touched or changed. Okay? So as you guys see on, on the sheet there at the top, our main idea this morning comes out of Luke 24 and Romans 14. Because all scripture leads to Jesus, we must pay close attention to all of scripture, including apocalyptic literature, to, to better understand Jesus' nature, character, and work. This helps believers to anticipate future glory with him and unbelievers to the wrath that is to come. Right, and so we're earmarking those and basing them in Luke 24 and Romans 14. Okay, so three questions that I hope to answer today, these are gonna be the primary and overarching goals for our time together, is the following. Why does apocalyptic literature matter to the believer? So I've, I've observed, and a few observations from just spending some time on this, that there's two camps when we come to these texts. Right, there's one that doesn't prioritize at all, and just completely writes it off. And then the other camp focuses way too much time on this, and this becomes an end to itself. Right? So I want to be cautious on both extremes. Right? A lot of people I know ask the question, why does this type of literature even matter? Why is this important to the believer? Why time at all, especially if I'm saved? Right? I'm saved, I know the gospel, why should I spend time in this part of the, of the word? So I want to spend some time on that. Second question I hope we can spend some time on today is how might I approach reading and interpreting this type of, of scripture? And then third, what do I learn about God and my relationship to and with him from this type of literature? All right, so those three questions are gonna guide our time here this morning. So as we turn to apocalyptic literature definition overview there on your handout, just wanna open it up to the folks here. What, what experiences do you have or have heard about or have personally wrestled through with apocalyptic literature? So op open question, when you guys think of this type of text, what comes to mind, what, what have you guys experienced? Good, the bad, the ugly, yes. I'm in the same camp. Yep. Zach. You want a more wacky example. I used to go to this Christian camp where the preacher there thought he knew the approximate time frame when Jesus was coming back. Yep. Or the like maximum limit, like he's going to come back by this year sort of thing. Yep. And so, yeah, it's a little unhelpful. <laughs> we'll talk about that as well. Yep. We're, we're two for two here. A anyone else? Yeah, go ahead, Lyle. I, I think of my, as a kid, my grandfather, um, on the one hand, very eagerly looking forward to the Lord's appearing, it's wonderful. And on the other hand, would occasionally, like, did you see about this hurricane, this tornado, this, it means it's coming. And I just found it very confusing yeah. as a kid. Why is that he's so happy about this terrible thing that he just saw on the news? So yeah. this was... Uh, the tension 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We'll address that as well. We're three for three. Anyone else? Yeah, Laura. Am I allowed to have a second? You may. Absolutely. <laughs> Great question. Yeah, these are great questions, y'all. And I'm hoping that today we can spend time addressing some of those um, in at least a little bit more detail. Hopefully it'll be helpful. Um, but yeah, all, all things I personally wrestled with, I, I think we're four for four on all of those. Um, but we continue to be in a spot of spending time in his word and asking for help, right? So. Okay, so apocalyptic literature. So this is a genre of biblical writing that reveals God's actions and coming judgment in predominantly symbolic language, right? So not always symbolic, but often. Um, it's characterized by an increased use of symbolism and increased use of the heavenly mediators explaining the visions. So we'll see in, in Daniel and Revelation that angels are part of revealing what's coming. Um, so we'll anticipate that here in a minute. As you see on your sheet, so apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation or disclosure. And then the verb tense of that means to uncover or reveal. So again, and I think this is a, a key point here, but we've got to ask the question, what is being revealed? What is being uncovered? What is being disclosed? Right? Because if, if we're going to talk about apocalyptic literature, we've got to understand, well, what is it that's being revealed? And I think predominantly there's, there's kind of two pieces here. Right? So one is the events that happen at the end of history. But at the same time, what is the climax and the, the anticipation of the end of history? Right? So we'll come to this in a few minutes here between the, the end times, the day of the Lord, or that day. But the anticipation of, of the return of Christ marks it but also the final judgment that Revelation speaks of at the end of time with believers and, and non-believers, okay? So what, what passages come to mind when you all think of apocalyptic literature, right? So I know we've touched on Revelation as probably the, the foremost example, but are there other texts in scripture that we see that remind you of apocalyptic literature? Yes? Yep, so that's going to be Daniel 7 through 14, so the, the second half. Yep. Anyone else? Many of the prophets. Yep. Agreed. A lot? Yes. 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 Yep, exactly. So we're, we're going to see that the end times, the approaching the final day, is talked about with both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? So again, as we look about the importance of understanding the New Testament, we've got to understand it in light of the Old Testament. So both are going to help bookmark us here. Okay? But just throwing out a few for you if, you, if you're curious. So Daniel 7 through 12, um, Isaiah 24 through 27, uh, Ezekiel has two chapters, 38 and 39, and then Joel 3 and Zechariah 9 through 14. So those are going to be predominantly Old Testament ones. We'll get to the rest here in a minute. Okay? So before we get to the differentiation on verbiage, um, did want to throw out a few caveats because I think these are especially helpful in the Old Testament readings. 
Um, some passages can anticipate Old Testament ca captivities of Israel and Judah. Sometimes they can refer to the first coming of Christ in the Messianic era first time around. And then sometimes though things portrayed in this type of literature are eternal realities, meaning that they're not bookmarked by time, they're eternal. So if you guys wanna join me in Daniel 7, we're gonna see an example of here in a minute. And we're gonna look at verse nine. And again, Daniel 7 begins the apocalyptic literature section in, in the book of Daniel. Um, but could someone read for me Daniel 7, verse 9? Got it. Yep. Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Thanks, Lyle. So y'all, why, why is this an example of a eternal reality? Yeah, so Daniel 7, 9, why is this an, an example of a eternal reality, not something that's just purely symbolic? Expand. Keep going. Yep. Yep. Exactly. You're right on. So, so that's something we also have to keep in mind as we're looking at Scripture. There's some things about who God is that are never changing, right? And I, I think this example specifically, and you know, we come to this in in verse 13 about a son of man being given to him. Right? Jesus has always been the Son of Man, right, in, in who he is. But this, the, the text just helps us understand him a little bit better. Just a little bit of uh, historical background on this type of literature. Um, so typically we're going to see that Jewish theology uh, developed a lot of this apocalyptic literature between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. Um, and then for Christians, this died out early after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Okay, so there's only a couple hundred year window where this type of literature was actually encouraged. Okay? So let's turn to the end times versus day of the Lord versus that day. Can, can anyone share what that difference is between kind of those three verbiages, if I can put it as such, or to take a stab there? Yes, sir. Exactly. So end times is good. Yeah. So end, end times is going to be the, that umbrella term, right? That we kind of impose upon scripture. Um, but the day of the Lord, that day falls under that umbrella. So well said, Zach. 
I'll, I'll skip through my next couple sections of notes here because you outlined it very well. Um, right, but I, I do think though it's, it's important to realize that there's both that Old Testament and New Testament articulation of that day, the day of the Lord. Um, a lot of different scripture verses I put there uh, for your reference. But again, the, the ultimate characteristic of that day, the day of the Lord, the end times, however you want to put it, is Yahweh's presence with his people, right? And, and Yahweh, right, is, is the Old Testament way of speaking about the covenant-keeping God that we see as God the Father, right? So as, as y'all think about Yahweh, and we're going to talk about Yahweh here over the next few minutes, is, is that Old Testament understanding of God as covenant-keeping, never changing, before all time began, true in all he is, right? So... Could someone, so we're going to read through Ezekiel 48, John 1, and Revelation 21 because the, that, that anticipation of Yahweh's presence with his people marks how we study, right? So could someone read for me the text out of Ezekiel there, 48, verse 35? Laura, uh, John 1, 14, Sam, and then Revelation 21, verse 3. Susanna, yeah. Whatever order, yep. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Yep. John 1. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Mm. So good. What'd you, so what do you all hear? And those are sweet verses. What do you all hear? Why is that important, Becky? It's just precious, right? Mm-hmm. All right, you caught me crying. It feels like that chills. Mm-hmm. Hearing the voice, but yeah. God is, is present. And I guess He's present with us all the time. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it's talking about something new, yeah. um, a, a deeper intimacy mm-hmm. or connection with Him. Yeah. 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 So we've been going over the Beatitudes in the evening. Does anyone remember which beatitude says they will see God? Yeah. Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. Right? So we, we have this Old Testament and New Testament anticipation that in the day, in that day, when Christ returns, we're going to see Jesus. Right? He came once, and, and as John 1 says, right, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was Christ's first coming. We anticipate a second coming because that reality is going to maintain itself and as we're going to be in heaven with God, we're going to actually be in the presence of the Father. Right? That's beautiful. So Suzanne and I were talking about this last night and you know, I'm still thinking through this a little bit, but you know, part of her reflection was 
well, I've always thought we're, we're just going to spend time with Jesus. It's like, yeah, that's true. We've also got the entirety of the Trinity that we're going to spend time with. Like, isn't that also beautiful? And it's in its own way. Like, we're going to see our Savior face to face. But then we're also going to be with the Trinity in its entirety that even if someone asks you, how, how do you describe the Trinity? Three persons, one nature. Great. How else do you describe it? There's a limitation on how we articulate the Trinity because it's something that's absolutely divine and eternal. And that day when we spend time with the Father, Son, and Spirit, we're going to understand him as he is revealed to us. I just think that's absolutely beautiful. So, on that note, and I think as a, as a tra- transition, but also as a, uh, a great exhortation here is, that's where the gospel comes into full view. Right? We, we get to see him because we know him. And how do we know him? We know him by believing in him, what he did. Right? God being fully man, fully God, came here to live life we couldn't live. To die a death that we deserve to die. He was buried for three days. But then he resurrected and ascended. Right? That ascension piece that Acts 1 talks about, that's going to be the same way that Jesus comes back. Right? So the gospel writers are connecting the fact and essence of who Jesus is tied to his ascension, the fact that he sits in heaven. And when he comes back, he's going to descend the same way. I just think that's a beautiful reality. So friend, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, I'd encourage you, put your trust in him. Because putting your trust in him is the only way you see him face to face. From a salvific standpoint, if you don't believe in him, you're still going to see Jesus face to face. But you're going to see him face to face as him as the ultimate judge. The one who ultimately is going to judge you for not choosing to follow him. Okay? So I, I think as I've, as I've grown here at Delray, that reality of we're still going to see Jesus face to face has become only larger. We, we don't just see him because we know him. We are going to see him as he truly and fully is, regardless of what we believe. I want to be, and I would encourage you, follow him because we're going to see him as Savior, not as judge. So we're going to turn here to what Jesus has to say about all of this. Uh, Lyle, to your point. Um, so if we could turn, please, to Luke 21. And we're going to look at just three short verses. We're going to look at verses 34 through 36. Okay? And... Contextually, right, Jesus is talking about the coming of the Son of Man, his second coming. So that day, you guys can see that in verse 25 through 28. But could someone read for me Luke 21, 34 through 36? Yeah, Mike. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Yeah. So what, what instructions does Jesus give us in anticipating his return? He gives us a few. Feel free and call them out. Watch yourselves. Yep. It's one. Yep. 
Louder. Right. One more time, Sam. Pray. Right. right? Y'all, we've got to be marked by prayer. Jesus says, stay awake at all times. Praying. Right? Praying is, is in the active form. That's not a past tense. Praying that you may have strength to escape the things that are coming and to stand before the Son of Man. Do you pray? I'll, I'll put that in a couple different brackets. So one, do you pray, period? Two, are you praying in anticipation of Christ's return because of all the things that we've been talking about? Are you praying that you'd have strength to persevere? And are you praying that you would be able to stand on guard? I think those are four very important questions to be asking as we consider this, these texts. Are you praying? Period. Are you praying in anticipation of seeing Jesus? And the glory, right? Praying with anticipation, that the form of prayer that evokes praise, right? Part of praise is prayer. Are we praying such that our posture is praiseworthy? Are we praying that we might persevere and endure? And are we praying that we might watch and stay on guard against sin? Okay? So as, as we go back to that main idea, right? Better understanding Jesus' nature, character, and work, that, that implies that we are praying. Because if we are not praying, we do not better understand who Christ is. It's very important. Okay? So I think the gospel writers and the, the New Testament writers get it right when they talk about the encouragement of prayer. Because the day of the Lord comes quickly. That day is coming. And I think that the tendency that we often have is, when are we going to know the day of the Lord? Right, Laura, you were saying, well, someone's going to say, oh, I know exactly when it's coming. That's a tendency we all feel because it's invoking such an anticipation. We want to know it. But Jesus says that even he himself does not know when he's going to be sent back. Only the Father knows the day and the hour. And so if only the Father knows the day and the hour, shouldn't that both alleviate some of that anxiety, but also then push us towards praise in prayer? I, I just think it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, another text I want to draw your attention to is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18. Uh, feel free and turn there. I'm not going to read the entirety here. Um, but something I, Jason was encouraging me this week with was uh, chapter 4, verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians. So as Paul is giving the Thessalonian church some encouragement about the day of the Lord, verse 18 says, Encourage one another with these words. Well, what words? <laughs> There's a lot of words there, the first couple verses. But the words anticipating that Christ is coming back and how to prepare. Right? So we, we have both this posture of praying and being on guard, watching and waiting, but then also encouraging one another. Y'all, especially if, if we're following Jesus, how, how do we approach a brother or sister on a Sunday or, or throughout the week saying, hey, 
the day of the Lord's coming, then what do you say? How, how do you encourage the brother or sister in their walk? Right? So this is both an individual understanding, growing in knowledge and wisdom of the coming, but then it's also an application communally of what then does that do amongst one another. Right? I, I think, again, a tendency we have is to read God's word and interpret it individualistically with my relationship with the Father and Son. And that's good. And I think there's a lot of good in that. But then how does that transform us into how we live, how we speak, how we encourage, how we spend time with one another? Right? So as we're spending time on some you know, end times things here, this shouldn't just be all to make you grow in your understanding. It's then to transform how you live. Okay? So we're going to spend some time here then on the characteristics of apocalyptic literature there in your notes. And I'm going to go through this yeah, relatively slowly, but uh, where appropriate. Um, so a lot of folks have asked, uh, you know, is there a difference between prophecy and apocalyptic literature? Are they the same thing? Are they different? What's different? Um, so I, I just want to read a few things here that I think may help to clarify. So typically we see in apocalyptic literature the extravagance of the imagery of God's anger and judgment against sinful humanity. But in prophetic literature, we never get the impression that God's reached a point of no return. By contrast, right, in apocalyptic literature, the time for repentance is typically past. Right? So God's judgments portrayed as moving in some sort of crescendo towards that final destruction, that final day. There's not a lot of scenes of repentance or restoration, but rather quite the opposite. We see in Revelation 9.20 that people did not repent of the works of their hands, nor giving up worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone. The people did not repent. Instead, we see that the faithful are exhorted to repent. Right? See the difference between the unfaithful and the faithful. They're admonished to endure to the end in the following different passages. So Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Revelation 3:11, hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. And Revelation 14, 12, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Right? So we see kind of a dichotomy here. Depending on the type of literature, there's an anticipation that God's still going to continue working, that the time's not yet done. But then you pivot over, and that time is done. Now it's how do you persevere till the final? Okay, So just two different things to kind of earmark us here. They're not always the same thing. Uh, apocalyptic literature, especially Revelation, can sometimes, in light of prophecy, have prophecy kind of umbrellaed, umbrellaed maybe I'm creating a new word, under the category of apocalyptic literature. Um, but typically in the Old Testament, we'll see that those are two different things. Okay? Um, a few different general characteristics for apocalyptic literature. Um, I'll name seven. Uh, I try to leave some space here on the side in case you'd like to take notes. Um, but generally, for apocalyptic literature, it's a revelation or unveiling of a divine plan through a series of visions or dreams by a heavenly messenger concerning the end times. There's typically a detailed description of past and present events, typically in coded or apocalyptic language. There's a detailed description of the end times, including some sort of chronology of surreal events. 
we'll see in, in Revelation that uh, the, the texts are not always chronological, um, but often they are. Uh, we see there's a sharp contrast to the force of light with the force of darkness. We see a pessimism regarding the present and an optimism regarding the future victory of the divine and transformation of the cosmos. We see that in Revelation 21. There's a mythic chaotic imagery harkening back often in the Old Testament to Near East tradition, um, and again described in that apocalyptic language. But then at the end of that great battle, God is truly triumphant as he was in the beginning of the universe. So that, that, those are some general characteristics of what we see in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Um, but I, and I think this is the part, though, where I, I've grown and starting to really appreciate apocalyptic literature is the, the compare and contrast. Um, so we're on that third bullet point under characteristics and Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Zechariah 14, verse 3, and Revelation 13, 1 and verse 7 help us with this. But we see really seven or eight core contrasts in apocalyptic literature. So one is God versus Satan, good versus evil, right? We're going to see final triumph of good, final defeat of evil. We see misery and destruction throughout history in its final phases versus that heavenly reward conceived of something that's absolutely beyond history. We see the age that is and the age to come. We see, especially in, in Jewish theology, shalom and chaos, right? So, so that's that Genesis 1-1, where there's the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos of the water. Jesus coming in to bring peace and that shalom, that fullness, restoration of what once formerly was, right? So shalom and chaos. And then we see judgment and eternal reward and glorification. A few more different characteristics before we turn to interpretation. Um, there's kind of three categories here just want to help elucidate on. Um, there's sometimes special categories where um, persons are personified. Um, so we see Christ symbolized and personified as a lamb in Revelation 5. And we see Satan personified as a dragon in Revelation 12. So sometimes personification comes out in scripture. We see different color symbols and numerical symbols. Um, I think Revelation's the, the, the greatest one on this one with color. So we see white, red, black, and purple. So white garments of the saints, spiritual purity. The red horse, slaughter in warfare. Black horse, Revelation 6, 5, equaling death. And then Revelation 18, verse 12, the purple and scarlet cloth of, cloth of Babylon, equaling affluence and prosperity. Right, so as, as we've been talking about, there's a, there's a heightened amount of, of symbolism here in Scripture. Sometimes they have very definitive, what is this referring to? And sometimes it's a little bit more abstract. And then the numerical symbols. So we see consistently across this type of literature, uh, the numbers 3, 7, 10, and 12. Right, so those are indicative of completion, perfection, victory, ultimate. Uh, we see the number 6, uh, which... Again, one way of putting it is the sinister number associated with mankind and its fallenness. Um, we see in both Daniel and Revelation the numerical three and a half, right? So that's just more generally a short time, temporary reign of evil. And then we see in Revelation uh, 7 the number 144,000, right? So that's the number of the redeemed more broadly, okay? 
So I'll pause. Any questions? We've gone through a lot. Or observations or ways in which this is growing your uh, appreciation for scripture. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, we see that in Matthew with Jesus, right, being clothed in a purple cloth, right, symbolic of the kingliness that the Romans were saying, well, we're going to mock you because of this, but that purple cloth was actually a true reality of what Jesus as king and Messiah actually deserved. Great question. Yeah. Okay. Oh, y'all. So the next page and a half on notes, uh, at least for your outline, I'm not going to go through all of this. Um, the definitions and approaches. Garrett did a Revelation Bible boot camp a couple weeks back and went into these in absolute depth. Um, so I put them on the page here as uh, references. Um, but again, I, I think as we think of developing, you know, different theological approaches to the millennium, right? Simply put, across those four first definitions, uh, each one of those theological perspectives relates to how we approach the millennial. Is it already here? Have we not yet entered it? And Christ will come at the after of the millennial. Or the millennial is not yet and Christ is going to come before the millennial is introduced. Right? A lot of things on that. I'm going to choose not to spend the time on that this morning. Um, I, I, I will say I think it's okay to wrestle through each one of these. Um, I know even among the, uh, the elders, there's different perspectives. Um, so I would just encourage you know, spending some time on this. Um, it, it's really good, but I think the, the different approaches, right, the idealist, the preterist, the historical, and the futurist, I think those are really good to wrestle through, right? And, and again, theological ideas, especially ones that are, are listed here, are not raised because these are completely cut and dry. There's a lot of nuance, a lot of questions that I think people that still are in these camps still wrestle with in thinking through them. Um, so my encouragement, spend some time on these, pray over it, you know, ask the Lord how to best understand it in light of the entirety of God's word, right? I think that's, that's one of the things I want to emphasize and we'll get to here in a minute with interpretation of being biblical is not necessarily having a singular verse to back your perspective, right? Being biblical in its true sense is weighing all of scripture. What does all of scripture say about something? Weighing that carefully with each other. Right? So as, as we're, I think, and I know myself, prone to have a particular perspective for a particular reason that I've had for a particular amount of time, right? I think part of humbly approaching God's word is saying, Lord, would you help me to see all of what your word says and to weigh that really carefully and asking each other, hey, as we're, and again, we'll get to this in a minute with an application, but how do we sharpen one another if our views are slightly different? Right? We love Jesus. We're part of the body together. We're co-members. We're encouraged to encourage each other with these things. Part of that encouragement is, hey, you see things slightly different than I do. Brother, sister, can you elaborate a little bit more on how you understand that? What's the Lord put on your heart such that you really are convicted by this? Maybe it's something that I'm missing or I disagree with for a particular reason. Right? I, I think those are good conversations to have with each other, especially on things dealing with the millennial. Okay. 
Okay, so some encouragements here. Um, and I just went through that. Okay, so how not to interpret. Uh, we'll get to the second bullet here. Um, so I think a couple things that are important to make sure that we are not doing as we're looking at apocalyptic and more prophetic literature in general is turning it into something that only those qualified to understand or interpret have the authority to do so. Meaning, because our pastors or elders might have a particular solidified point of view, that should necessitate us not to spend time on this at all. Right? I think that's probably an unhelpful perspective. Um, I think there are certainly those who are very learned in this area, very theological deep for a lot of reasons, a lot of study, a lot of preparation. Um, but I don't think that should turn into something where we shouldn't spend any time on because someone else has done the research. Right? I think we should, as the entirety of God's word encourages us, to spend time on all of God's word. That's why we have all of God's word. It's not just to focus it on the minutia. Okay? I think second, uh, I think there's often a tendency to view this type of literature as mysterious and therefore not spending time on it simply because, well, no one really knows. It's kind of like hard to understand, might not ever come to a full working definition of something. Ergo, I've got better things to do with my time. I'm going to go to a different part of scripture. Right? I think sometimes there's ways to do that appropriately. Um, but again, if, if God's word, right, and I was sharing at the beginning, is inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, and it's sufficient, that includes this type of literature. That means it is true. It is authoritative. It does help us understand the gospel, and it does lead us to Jesus, as Luke 24 says. Right? So spend time on it, even if it's hard. I think that's one of the good things being in a body here, is being able to wrestle with some of these things together. Okay. I think a, a third piece here on how not to interpret is uh, reading the daily, weekly, monthly, or weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal or New York Times and trying to connect different world events with what scripture says. Justin, I don't. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't, not, not, nope, I'm not gonna go there, Justin. Um, Right? But again, I think there, there can be tendencies, and I've personally experienced this, where I hear different family members or you know, friends from the past, hey, do you see what happened in the news the other day? Isn't that tied with this verse? Oh, well, I didn't think of it that way. How do you connect that? And it becomes an esoteric elaboration of something that's completely fabricated. I think we need to be really careful of just translating the local news with something that scripture says. I think fourth, and, and I think this one's especially pertinent, we've got to be very wary and on guard of those who claim to know when Jesus is coming back. Right? And, and I've had personal experience this with some very close family members that have said something along these lines. Well, so-and-so connected this, this, and this, and got to the fact that Jesus is coming back in this year or this month, and it just all of a sudden like made sense. Like, I don't know how they got to that, but it made a lot of sense. So two concerns with that, and, and I had this conversation within the last year. One, no one knows the day and the hour. Only the Father does. So for someone to articulate that, it's a first and immediate write-off. But then for someone to elaborate on connecting theological ideas together in a way that doesn't make sense, that's a huge red flag, right? Scripture and presenting Scripture is meant to be clear. It's supposed to be clear so that you can understand it. And if someone's elaborating, expanding upon scripture that's unclear, 
that, that's really concerning because scripture is meant to be clear. And part of the job of those that teach is to help make it so you can track where I found my main argument all the way to closing statement, everything in between. Right? So very important. If you hear someone say something, you have no idea how they got there. That's concerning. That's a red flag. Okay. Okay. So some obvious interpretations here to characterize the end times. Um, again, I got these from uh, Dr. Riken, not the Wheaton president, but his dad, who's an English professor at the school, um, from one of his books, uh, a, gu a guided study of prophecy, apocalypse, and visionary literature. So this is his words, not mine. Um, but he says there's going to be moral and spiritual degeneration in human society. There's going to be a spirit of apostasy, including the Antichrist and others who mislead people. There's cataclysmic natural and military disasters. Again, these are, are general characteristics of what's going to mark the end time. So I, th I think these are very reasonable and we see these across scripture. There's going to be a, a great tribulation and persecution of believers. The parousia, or the arrival, the second coming of Christ, is going to mark that day. The millennium, again, as we talked about, however that's interpreted, is going to be an immediate and final judgment, including the banishment of the unrepentant to hell, a final dissolution of earthly reality, and then the glorification of believers in the new heaven and new earth. Okay, So just some things that I think as we're thinking through these type of texts, those are, those are good characteristics that infuse how we read Daniel, Joel, and Revelation. Okay. Okay. So how to go about interpreting. So I'll give a few encouragements. Um, and I think every person who's sat in this chair the last couple weeks will say the same thing, but use scripture to interpret scripture, right? So as Garrett ex exhorted us in thinking through Revelation, where do we see this in the Old Testament? Very important to be able to understand Old Testament, New Testament, how they gel. Okay. Revelation should be read in the perspective of the original audience, right? So how would the early Christians of Asia Minor addressed in Revelation 1 to 3 understood the later parts of this book? That's going to be no different than the context in Daniel or the rest of the prophets. And, and I was like this, right? You've heard location, location, location for buying a property. Um, you know, in, in finding another person to spend life with or dating someone or family, it's all about communication. Communication, communication, communication. Um, you know, scripture is all about context. So context, context, context. Make sure you spend time on that. And then as I mentioned earlier, Revelation's not meant to be read chronologically. So we see that if in Christ's birth, not reported until Revelation 12. So if we anticipate that this is all chronological, then we hit the halfway point and we're starting over, right? So there's various repeated scenes of visions that use nearly identical judgmental language Again, Garrett clarifies a lot of that in the Bible boot camp. Okay, so application, and I think we're doing good on time here. Um, so eschatology writ large encourages us to ask and wrestle with the following questions. And I would encourage you to spend time on these personally, um, but especially with someone that you know that's not yet a follower of Jesus. Um, what, what does God teach us about himself about others and ourselves, question number one. Question number two, who am I? Question number three, where did I come from? And question number four, where am I going? So I'll say this again. So as, as you're thinking about wrestling with apocalyptic literature and, and applying it, 
Right, I, I think four key questions to ask yourself, but then especially those that are not yet believers. What, what does God teach him about himself? What about others and what about ourselves? Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Right, those are, those are really important life questions um, that I know as, as spending time with unbelievers, especially at work, the question of who are you? What's important? Where are you going? Those open up a lot of different avenues for the gospel. Um, so just would encourage you, obviously, with one another as well. But I think those are just really good questions to, to frame with unbelievers. Um, some helpful tools to consider. Um, so apocalyptic literature is not just based scripturally. Uh, so we see some texts that are, are scriptural in the canon. Um, but a lot of the first century Jewish apocalyptic literature is actually outside the Old Testament. Um, I've got a whole list here if you're interested in what those are, why those are important. Happy to talk about that afterwards. Uh, I already mentioned Leland Riken's Reading the Bible as Literature book. Great resource, especially for preparing for this morning. Um, thanks to Chris, Robert Plummer's 40 Questions about Interpreting the Bible. Great resource. Encourage that. Um, also, I don't know if you knew this, but we have a statement of faith that's published on our website that talks about end times and eschatology. Um, so it's, it's the 15th one, and it's about the world to come. Um, a ton of scripture packed into that, um, but a, a great resource to especially familiarize yourself of what does Del Rey stand for? How are we approaching as a body the world to come in its entirety? So we we'll just in, encourage that. And then I believe the other Cody, Cody Montgomery, did a foundations class in November, December timeframe of how to understand the end times. Right? So I think there'll be a, a fair amount of overlapping material, um, but would encourage you to listen to that recording that's on the website. And finally, how, how, how as a believer do we approach apocalyptic literature? Right? And, and just, I, yeah, I, I've been wrestling through this in a really good way. Um, but we're going to come full circle, right? Because it centers on the work, nature, and character of Christ, it centers on the coming time where we will see him face to face. And it centers on the fact that we will be with him forever. But we get a glimpse of God himself, right? So this alone should draw us to reading this type of scripture with anticipation about how he reveals himself, right? Scripture is God revealing his word. And so if he's revealing his word, that's naturally going to help us to understand what he's revealing about himself. So anticipate that. Right? God is sovereign. He's just. He's powerful. He's in complete and utter control of the universe, and we get to trust him in that. He's at work. He's not workless. He's working. His present, current tense. I think this is a great one, especially for this body, this month. Um, a lot of suffering going on, a lot of hurt. Um, <coughs> apocalyptic literature is meant to be a source of comfort and actually a source of encouragement. So the, the Jewish people, as they were writing this, they, they were in their own dealings with hurt and persecution. And so they were anticipating, as they were writing this, the coming of, of Yahweh, right? That, that judgment that's going to redeem and, and bring peace from their persecutors. The early church before AD 70, right? They're in their own midst of persecution. And so as John's writing this, he's not only exiled, but he's anticipating a day when persecution is going to be eradicated. Right? There, there's going to be that, that moment where there's rejuvenation and joy. 
right? And so I think this type of text is meant to be a source of encouragement and comfort during our time in need because he says that I will be with you, right? There's, there's promises in scripture that are contextual and there's promises in scripture that are forever promises. I will be with you and I will not forsake you. That is one to cling to. That is one to be confident in because that is not changing. Okay, so I'll pause. Um, we're almost out of time, but any reflections, any considerations? I know we've gone through a lot. Anything to share before we conclude? Mike, go for it. Uh, yeah, so specifically with the text that there are disagreements So if I'm if I'm hearing you right, you're asking how do we how do we rest in the uncertainty in interpreting text, but recognizing then that he's still sovereign, still reigning and ruling. Or did I miss that, Mike? Yeah, yeah. How do we how do we rest in hmm. specific interpretation and application yeah. of, of text? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. I think <laughs> I, I mean, I'll open it up, Chris, I don't know if you have anything to encourage. Uh, I would say scripture interprets scripture, so there's some things that are easy, easier to understand. You were also class last week, by chance. Uh, yeah. 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 No, no, yeah, so, uh, yeah. so that's Part of what last week's was intended to answer is just like how do we how do we resolve dif differing text like texts that seem like they're at odds or things that are less clear like what do we do with that and so I would just say there are many things that are clear and we want to like that's our bread and butter in some ways like we want to rest on what we know to be true and we want to let those things give light to um, to the stuff that's more obscure, or to the stuff that people can't easily disagree on, because there's yeah, there's plenty of people who disagree, and and even like how we hold the Bible together is going to affect what we do with the, the individual texts that are, that are difficult. So one of my questions to you is going to be: sure. so in Revelation, as an example, uh, when you see Jesus as a lamb, <clears throat> how do I like how do we think about what does that mean? Yeah. And what do I, where do I find, where do I find the answer to that question? Yeah. It does. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think as you know, we're encouraging scripture, interpreting scripture. I think a question to ask is, where do I see this in the Old Testament, and why is the Old Testament characterizing it as such? Right? So I think we're going to see, you know, Jesus characterized as a lamb, first of all, represented in, in Abel, 
in the story of, of Abel, but then we're going to see that in the Passover. Um, Jesus himself talks about the lamb. So I think going back to the Gospels, where, where is the lamb encouraged to consider being slain? But then also, how does the New Testament writers address that more broadly? So I think the scripture is full of, of that lamb analogy. Um, so I would just encourage going there. Yeah, if I could even just, just one thing I would add would just be there are instances in the Bible where God's people are described as his little lambs. So yep. we should understand those as being different things. So when we come to the apocalypse of Revelation and see the lamb, it has a specific meaning in yep. its context that we don't just apply lamb in the same way everywhere we see it. I think that's a good, that's a good kind of tool like that we want to see a passage in its there's another class on that, but seeing a passage in its context yep. will help give meaning to the word that's being used in a way that we shouldn't just take that and then apply it everywhere we see that word. Yeah, that's great. Hi, y'all. It's 10 o'clock. I'm going to close this out here in prayer and we can anticipate Psalm 34. Um, Father, we thank you and we praise you that your word is true and what it teaches. Thank you that it's sufficient for uh, yeah, a life of, of godliness and knowing you. Thank you that it's authoritative and that it does give correct teaching. Um, Father, we thank you for what your word, especially apocalyptic literature, teaches us about the anticipation of the coming of Christ, the day in which we will see you face to face. So we pray that we would wrestle well with these texts, um, that you would encourage one another as we wrestle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.